everybody and welcome to episode 107 of Link to the Cast, your weekly dose of video games and nerd culture ephemera. On the show this week, Call of Duty makes itself even less appealing to Dave and Mark. Oh, Konami. And the King of Kong done a whole mess of wrong. In our book club this week, we revel in the dread of bureaucracy with Papers, Please. Let's start the show. is Link to the Cast, episode 107 from your friends over at linktothecast.eu, available on all your favorite podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Podcast Addict, or Stitcher. I'm your party host, Dave Ryan, joined by the returning hero himself, parade thrown on the street for him. It's the platforming prodigy, Mark Robinson. How are you, friend? Hello, Dave. That's what you sound like. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's been a while. Uh, it's, been a while. Al- it's always good to have uh, Jack to hold down, the- to be the glue between us when the- either you're away on assignment or I'm away on assignment. So um, yeah. thank you, Jack. Thank you for yes. um, reminiscing with me about the times where I would just be in rage at Metro City because uh, <laughs> SX3 is a fucking nightmare of a game, but such a good game. Was you, was you a fan of SSX3 back in the day, or was that around the time you didn't have a console... Uh, no, it's, it's not that I didn't have a console. There was a time at which my, my video game playing went down to the point where I had a console, but I was just playing like FIFA. Okay, right. <laughs> kind of <laughs> similar to me, actually. Yeah, because like I got, I got, I got really into Scotch for a while, Mark. In, <laughs> instead of like doing stuff, living, <laughs> that living was... that gimmick, hey? Yeah, yeah. Living the stereotype. So, yeah, and the whole like. The whole kind of college social life thing was happening for a few years um instead of like uh games or films or anything See, like that I, went so completely, I, I played a lot of catch-up I, I went completely the other way in that i was entirely straight edge during university um <laughs> yeah the first time we met you were straight edge yeah yeah i mean i wouldn't say like straight edge more just i didn't drink you know um, I, I i was not the first time we met <laughs> no no you were not and particularly I at was... that moment in time yeah, i think what you might uh, what uh, irish people might refer to as fucking scuttered yeah. i was the first time we met but you know you were polite and charming enough and i was like oh he seems like a nice guy he just you know merry with life and however many pints he'd had <laughs> um it was on the stellas that night if i remember <laughs> But yeah, no, I I just wasn't drinking through uni, uh, which actually saved me a lot of money and paid for my trip to WrestleMania. So, you know, when you... actually, no, because I was going to say that worked out good in the end, but then it was the one with Miz and Cena. So really, <laughs> I didn't, didn't really win there. You should have just gone to the bottom of the bottle instead I of over. I should have just fucking been down in Jack Daniels every night. Uh, anyway, how are you? Yeah, I'm all right. Uh, we were just talking off the air about how I'm uh, doing a bit of... Uh home repair and stuff at the moment um all of you guys have flown the nest so uh before the the the, the young wife moves in um my, my girlfriend she uh i've got to kind of make the place look you know somewhat presentable less like a bunch of lads lived here for the last six years and more like a place that's actually a home um 
so I, I've been doing a whole hell of a lot of stuff this week. So very little video games have been happening, but I'm actually doing some stuff that uh, most people outside of our little bubble would call stuff actual grown men are supposed you, to you're do. You're being an adult. Yeah, yeah, it's really... Um, so like, you know, painting, repairing stuff, um, cleaning generally, and then just kind of buying and, and furnishing. And yeah, it's, it's... It's a whole bunch of I'm, adult words there. Do you know, like, yeah, I'm, I'm, like, I'm sore and I'm tired, but at the same time, let's be honest, you're loving it a little bit. Yeah, like, there's a weird sense of accomplishment you get from stuff like that. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like the, the kind of accomplishment satisfaction we often talk about playing video games is kind of a fleeting thing because you know you beat a video game, it's like, way, hey, you know, you enjoy it in the moment, then you move on. But there's like a real accomplishment in like just something as simple as. Um, painting a window frame or sanding down a windowsill or you know cobbling together a bookshelf or, or something like that does it that speak to like it has our, more permanence object permanence like does it speak to kind of our low level of aspirations that such tasks of that nature are actually you know kind of to us worthy conquering events like anytime <laughs> i put any kind of flat pack furniture together i'm like fuck me i get me on the tv get me get me in someone's yeah. house i'll do the whole thing up in a day I mean, yeah, I suppose we doing stuff like that definitely books the, uh, the 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 prejudices that are often thrown at our generation that we can't fucking do anything. So mm. anytime that I do accomplish something, I feel like you know, aha. Did you see the uh, the the article that was going around today about millennials are taking over the workforce? Are they? Yes, apparently, like, yeah, there are loads. It's almost of almost like there's loads of them. Yeah, that you know, looking for jobs. Who'd have thought? You're saying that baby boomers aren't on the rise. It's just, it's madness. Um, it's, almost, can, it's almost like the passage of time <laughs> proceeds forward or something <laughs> like that. It doesn't work like that for baby boomers. Um, can I talk to you, because, you know, I'm never around to do the, the popcorn social. Can I talk to you about a film? I don't know if, you, if you've seen it yet. I'm presuming you I, will go and this, see it. I, I've seen this on the agenda, and I've really wanted to see this film, but with everything that's going on, like uh, in uh, trying to fix up a house, I, I'm trying to find the time. I think I will this weekend, but, but tell me. So I went and uh, I saw A Quiet Place at the weekend. Um, now, uh, the missus took me to go and see it because, Dave, you are more than aware that when it comes uh, to the scary, scary films... I'm a bit of a pansy. Yeah. Um, but she was like, look, we're going to go and see it because Isle of Dogs, for some reason, was only on at 10 o'clock in the morning. So I was like, fine, we'll fucking go and see it. It has Emily Blunt. I really like her. Everything I've ever seen her in, uh, I think she always kind of knocks it out of the park. Um, I thought Edge of Tomorrow was fucking awesome uh, and had no right to be as good as it was. Um, and she was in that film last year, uh, The Girl on the Train, I think it was called. Uh, Oh, I know, I know what you... Uh, yeah, I can't remember. Something exactly. like that. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and she was great in that as well. Um, and so the premise alone, at least, I was like, okay, cool. There are these alien monster-type creatures that have come from nowhere, um, and they uh, are blind, and they use sound to hunt. Cool, sure, I can work with that. Uh, and so it was directed by uh, John uh, Krasinski, um, who also stars in the film as well. And, and is her husband. And is real life uh, husband as well, uh, and I think that kind of definitely shows like the the chemistry between them is definitely you know it does show. Uh, there's a bunch of uh, kid act child actors as well who are actually really decent for the role that they need to do, and so the film like in terms of the plot and the story, it's basically 
um, as I said, there are these monsters and uh, it's this family trying to survive. So in terms of the actual the story, there's not that much to it. And in terms of like character development, there's there's a few arcs here and there. But it's really kind of based on the, the premise of these monsters and these set pieces. But it all flows together and it's only about 90 minutes long. So it's a kind of... Uh, pretty breakneck pace that yeah. it's our Im- movies should always be short. Yeah, and it's impressive that they managed to build this world and build the danger of these monsters within the first five to ten minutes very, very effectively. So you've got a good eighty minutes or so to just kind of do you know the rest of the film onwards from the the kind of um plot device that creates the rest of the film basically. Um, and I think it was it was brilliant. Um, it it has a real level of intensity to it. Um, Emily Blunt, in particular, when like her reactions and how she handles uh, certain uh, scenes with you know, obviously, I, I think the monsters for the most part are CGI. I don't think there was any prosthetics involved. I might be wrong. Um, if that's not the case, then the CGI is very very impressive. Um, and she just she's incredible in the quiet moments because there are there are the scenes when the monsters do attack and they're really uh, visceral um, in their uh, in their approach to attacking uh, the humans, but it's the real quiet moments when they're kind of sulking slowly around um, and how the uh, how the actors now Emily Blunt in particular reacts to them that really adds to the level of intensity. And um, I will say that we don't really need a Last of Us film now because this kind of <laughs> does a lot of what that film has. Obviously, the the relationship between the main characters in The Last of Us is a lot of what that game is about. But in terms of you know having these monsters that rely on sound and how uh, how this family kind of survives around them. Um, there's a lot. I like. I don't know how much, if at all, this film was influenced influenced by The Last of Us, but there are a lot of parallels there. Um, mm. And one of the things that's really smart about the film is there's only I'd say about two to three minutes of actual dialogue in the film um, because the way that they describe this family that managed to survive is the fact that they use sign language because they have a daughter who is uh, deaf, and so um, obviously I presume that it's never explained, but they all have learned sign language to help her. Um, so, you know, anything over the sound of, like, making a small noise, a small amount of conversation, is going to alert the monsters. So they use sign language as a way to get around. Uh, and that really kind of adds, A, to, like, the quiet moments, because a lot of the film is quite quiet. Um, and so, obviously, when the kind of jump scares that are kind of predictable happen, they're still very much enjoyable. Uh, yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, it was better than The Beach, which I rewatched the weekend. And that's a fucking terrible film. Jesus Christ. What a bad film. Anyway, yeah, go and see it. It's good. Yeah, um, like, I I always... I'm a, I'm a big horror guy, uh, as you know. Um, and I'm always interested in how horror movies use the concept of silence. Um, because I think... Often, much as like a lot of um, horror films we we know and love, or well, I know and love, you just know, um, 
they make you you know like there's an there's a recognizable soundtrack or or sound effect or something like that associated with the film but i often think some of the most eerie and and creepy things in horror movies are the moments where the score stops and there's just complete silence now a lot of mistakes are made in horror films because usually uh, in, in modern horror, you have a moment of silence that kind of to the people who are clued in know that means a jump scare is coming immediately. So it kind of takes the suspense out of the silence when it's basically an audio clue that we stop the soundtrack because something scary is going to happen. And it kind of takes the the air out of the jump scare then. Um but I will be very interested to see uh, how a film makes use of that. The fact that, like, for the majority of the time, there there is no dialogue. It is silent. And I think it's a really interesting experience having a largely silent um, film in, in front of a live audience, like a horror film, because you will, you will feel the room getting tenser, I imagine. You know, uh, when, when there there isn't as much sound happening. Um and yeah, to hit up as well on the, the Emily Blunt is a fantastic actress. Um, I, 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 I also can't think of something I've seen her in uh, that she's bad in. I, I didn't realize years after the fact because she's unrecognizable uh, to the actress she is now that she has a very very small part in a in a film I like called Charlie Wilson's War, which is very worth checking out. I I enjoy that film. She's also great in Looper, which is one of my favorite kind of modern sci-fi films. And have you seen Sicario? I've not, and I've actually not seen Looper as well, which Nina keeps banging on about, so I should watch that. You should see Looper, and you should definitely see Sicario. Sicario's by the guy, Denis Villeneuve, who did uh, Blade Runner 2049. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he did Sicario, then Arrival, and then this, uh, or then uh, Blade Runner, should I say. Um, So you should definitely check out Sicario. Arrival is more uh, horror, but it's actually... uh, Horror and sci-fi, but I I, I think Arrival might be the, the most unique... Uh, sci-fi movie concept I've seen in, in years and years so if you're if you're feeling up to it I would say watch Arrival as well okay. but S- Sicario for a great Emily Blunt performance and a great Benicio Del Toro performance as well um, yeah I, I will I will definitely check that shit out um, shall we talk about some video games my friend yes let's stop with the mini popcorn social <laughs> indeed playing this week hey check it out I learned the baseline from Final Fantasy 2 Scott, you are the salt of the earth. Well, thanks. I meant scum of the earth. Thanks. Uh, I might take things first here, uh, Mark, because I haven't been playing a whole hell of a lot because of the uh, the aforementioned DIY situation. Um, but I I will kind of tag up on my my Far Cry Five chatter from last week. One to kind of give a a kind of update on where I am in the game, and and two to see if there's there's any anything you want to kind of quiz me about or anything like that based on what I said last week or what I might say this week. Um, yeah, still enjoying the the kind of surface level visceral experience of playing Far Cry Five a lot. Uh, I've gotten a lot more under the hood with the different things that are going on now. Pretty much tried all the variations of of side quests uh, at this point. Done a bit of everything. I've completely cleared out. So the the way it's done, Mark, is that like 
you've got that kind of that that father character who's in all the ads who's like the main bad guy but you mainly deal for the the vast majority of the game the map is split up into three main regions and it's just three lieutenants basically so you're in there's there's john's region um jacob's region and hope's region uh they're your three uh, lieutenants and you basically go into the region and the side quests or the story missions or the the kind of like random emergent gameplay things you do while rambling in a region uh, give you what are called resistance points basically each thing boils down to a number of points and the further you you tip up that meter the you go up past think of it almost like a big uh wanted level thing in gta so once you get the first kind of like third of the way up the bar you get to your first kind of significant moment which is kind of where the the ai becomes more aggressive towards you in the area there there's patrols out looking for you now uh the second these then will be they will start sending like airplanes and helicopters out that will be able to spot you from the sky and that is like and it gets really aggressive then and that is pretty much like if you stand still for about 30 seconds anywhere in that game either the air support or one of the roving patrols are going to find you so that's how like it keeps the momentum and the adrenaline going because you you have to constantly stay on the move if you're out in the open uh and then the point of doing that is once you fill the meter up that begins sort of the end game for that region where you go into this kind of long story mission that ends with a with a confrontation with the lieutenant of the region uh who you will then dispose of in due course and then once you get rid of, you clear all three regions out that's what triggers the kind of the the end game then with with the father um yeah, completely cleared out John's region, which I, I very much enjoyed. Well, everything was new in there, so obviously you're you're going to enjoy uh, whenever you're doing everything for the first time. And uh, his kind of like the the last mission where you're kind of dealing with John is uh, hard as fucking nails. I think uh, Jack talked about it on the show last week. There's like it's a really long. Uh, mission that takes you down there's there's a lot of the, the, the first part takes place outside in the world but then the real tough part of it is basically you're proceeding down through a bunker to try and save one of the deputies that you were with at the beginning of the game and then you have to get all the way back out of the bunker again and you're going through waves and waves of increasingly tough and in, increasing in number uh, enemies Um, so it was kind of it was tough and it was challenging in a way that missions hadn't been necessarily up until that point, which definitely gave me a better feeling of satisfaction than once I got through it. But I did die several times. Uh, and now I'm on the, the second region, which I've nearly completely cleared as well. Um, and I suppose for an open world game like this, the challenge isn't how exciting can you make missions the first time you do it. It's when you go to the next region and you're doing variations on that theme again, can the, can the game pivot them enough or or provide enough spins on the same idea to keep things a little bit fresh and so far i would have to report that, that yes it, they have been able to do that um i haven't found myself getting um completely bored of the game or anything like that the only time i, I turn it off is if i'm like right i've got a satisfactory amount of stuff done now i'm done with my session or if it's kind of like you know i might get frustrated the odd time i, I hit a wall uh, there are some missions that are chal more challenging than, than others. 
Um, and the thing that uh, that keeps you really going through this game, and I think Jack talked about it as well last week, are these stash missions. Um, which I don't know if you'd heard anything about them, Mark. How do these prepper stash they're called? I've, I'm actually really kind of in the dark about Far Cry 5 overall, so... Uh, Okay, so the, there are these missions called Prepper Stash Missions, and, and basically you once you clear an outpost or you find a new area, you'll see these icons kind of appear, you know, on your in your field of view. You'll see it's shaped like a diamond. So you go over and investigate the thing, and it'll either be a person or it'll be, a lot of the time, it'll be like a document lying around. And you'll read it, and it'll put the Prepper Stash Mission up on it and the best way i can describe it is it's like far cry wanted to do shrines from breath of the wild right okay or a korok seed quest some combination of the two because what it is is there are these prepper stashes so it's a it's a stash of like a cache of weapons cash and perk points are hidden in all sorts of places around the world and you find the document to give you the waypoint to where it is but then once you get to the area, it's not as straightforward as open the door, there it is. You will have to accomplish uh, some sort of, like, you'll, you'll have to figure out based on what it says where you need to be looking, or you will need to solve some sort of puzzle to allow you access. So a couple of the ones um, I, I was trying to think of there, so that there's one where you have to... You get to an area and you clear out a bunch of dudes and then you have to hit a bunch of water mains or you have to turn a bunch of water mains uh, that kind of drop the level of water around you and reveal a cave that you have to grapple down to and get in there and then work your way through like a maze of caves to find your way to the stash there. Um, then there's another one which is like I was in this kind of building site, abandoned building site that's set up like a, a maze and you have to find your way into it first, which is not easy, just get even getting into the fucking thing. And then you have to get kind of all the way around it to the other side. Because once you get in straight away, there's a door and you can see the prepper stashes behind that. But the door is an electric electronic door and it's locked because there's no power. So you have to make your way all the way to the other end of the maze, hit the, the switch... The switch turns on the electricity, but because the building is half flooded, all the ground you just walked over to get there becomes electrified. So you can't just retrace your steps. You have to find a second way to complete the same maze, but in reverse, uh, just to get your prepper stash. And there are enough of these, like I would say, I, I, I don't know how many there are, but it felt like about a dozen or so in just the first region um so there's enough of those that say like if you're done oh i like i've done enough of the clearing a standard outpost or things like that kind of missions that you can kind of just dip into a few prepper stash missions just to kind of refresh yourself and, and then come back um so i really enjoyed that there's a couple of things as well there's there's one side quest series i went on i'm not going to spoil it too much but there's a really fourth wall breaking series of side quests where you essentially <laughs> start the production for or help restart the production for and then ostensibly star as a stuntman in a film adaptation of Far Cry Blood Dragon. Right. <laughs> so it's like, 
all the criticisms I've seen over the last couple of weeks are very fair in terms of like the actual story for the game is the least interesting and least compelling part of it by some considerable distance. Uh, There are also some bugs. We discussed them last week, but there are also some bugs in the game that kind of are annoying from time to time. But on a like just basic minute to minute gameplay level, I am having so much fucking fun with Far Cry. Yeah. Yeah, I compared absolutely. to because I feel like um, after you had Far Cry Four and then we had Far Cry Primeval, like, do you feel that there's enough here that um, it, it changes the formula up enough? Because uh, I know that a lot of people um, were excited more than anything that um, the 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 approach that they were t- taking in terms of um, the the subject matter, which uh, seems to from the marketing afterwards was changed to to not reflect so much this kind of um right wing or pro- look at certain parts of the right wing um so yeah. like there's a how much of that is in the game and b yeah. um yeah how uh, is there enough there in terms of change that makes it feel a lot different from say far cry 4 and, and primeval yeah. So firstly, just to tag up on that kind of like them pulling back. And, and that was the take that we had had on the show coming into it, that like they were going to do this kind of social commentary thing or they were at least talking about it. And then the massive blowback, they they kind of pulled back from that and took it out of the game. But um, I, I believe I don't want to misattribute the, the credit for this idea, but I believe it was I was listening to the Easy Allies podcast last week or the week before. And they were talking about this issue and they made the very good point that I had completely forgotten. Do you remember when the promotional images came out for Far Cry 4 and Pagan Min had his, uh, like either his foot or his hand, like on top of a downtrodden slave? I don't remember that, no. Yeah, so that was the original, one of the original promotional images for Far Cry 4 had that. And from that, everyone inferred firstly like how dare you portray because pagan min kind of looks caucasian in in some of the even though he is seemingly a native of the area um he did look caucasian in some of the promotional images like how dare you show that kind of like racial kind of subjugation uh in a, a promotional image and the other thing was oh maybe this game is going to make um like some cutting statements about the slave trade in 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 in, mid, in the middle of asia and it never did that and um their point on the easy allies was that like maybe it was never the intention much like it was never really the intention because with far cry 4 they came out immediately and went whoa, whoa, whoa you are all reading way too much into this this is not what this game is and like maybe it was a case of ubisoft have one hand which is the develop the people who are actually developing the game and then the other hand which are the pr side of things and the pr people looked at the game that they had been handed to promote and made that like dark creepy first trailer and then went whoa no no this is not the fucking game we're making at all um so i'm more skeptical than i was about the idea that this kind of biting social commentary was in far cry and then got taken out because of the reaction because as was pointed out by easy allies or whoever it was far cry has never really done that uh certainly not well uh, but it's never really attempted to be this grand, completely 100% serious, biting social commentary. Sp- particularly not the, the the modern Far Cry games, anyway. 
Um, but in terms of uh, you were asking the question there about kind of changing the formula, they have. I would not say they've changed the formula so much as refined it and taken out some of the things that don't work. Um, they like all the kind of trappings of Far Cry that have been carried over in previous games are in there and slightly more polished, slightly more well thought out. Um, and peppering in new kinds of side quests like the the prepper stash I was just talking about. And then they've also taken out things that were really dumb, like the one thing that got a complete shellacking, not in, just in this particular Ubisoft game, but in Ubisoft games in general, was the idea of the radio tower to unlock parts of the map. Um, that's completely gone. There, There is none of that. You get, um, you basically unfog the map by traveling there. Uh, kind of like a GTA game or something like that. Just by driving to a place, it completely like defogs the route you would travel through. Uh, and then you can unlock points of interest either by talking to people in the world. It very much encourages you to try and talk to every NPC you can because they might have a quest. They might have a bit of information. Uh, or sometimes when you go and clear out a cult outpost or something like that, there's a little map. And when you pick that up, it uh, highlights points of interest in the surrounding area from where you're standing right now. Um, so they, what I would say is it's not a complete, we threw out the baby with the bathwater and have rebuilt the concept of Far Cry from the ground up. But what I will say is it's a very good version of what Far Cry already was. And it, if you like Far Cry, you will think this is a very good game uh, with some flaws, obviously. But if you have never played a Far Cry game before, and this is the kind of game that would appeal to you, you might think it's one of your favorite games of the year just because everything will be new to you. Okay, cool. Maybe, because I I, uh, I missed on Far Cry 4 completely. Um, I like that game a lot. Yeah, so, I don't know. Maybe this is one I'll check out at some point. Yeah, one thing, one thing I will say is missing is that I really love Troy Baker in Far Cry 4. Uh, he chewed every fucking ounce of scenery he could get, and this game is kind of missing that edge of, like, periodically you would do stuff, and uh, Pagan Min, Troy Baker, would come over the radio in Kairat. Like, you're driving along, and all of a sudden he cuts in on the radio just to fucking bury you. <laughs> so, like, um, it's missing that kind of edge to it, but um, there's still enough good stuff in there that I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying myself with it. Alright, so I am going to not spend as much time, but I'm going to talk a little bit about a game called The Blossom Tales, uh, which I believe came out last year, um, but it was recently released on Switch, because, as we've noted, everything's on the fucking Switch these days. This was the game we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, when Jim Sterling brought to light that it outsold, the, the Switch skew of this game outsold the Steam skew by a factor of 20. Yes, uh, so this is developed by Castle Pixel, um, and it it tells the story of um, a young female uh, princess who uh, has to save the world, basically. Um, and it's presented the story is presented by a grandfather telling this kind of old tale to uh, his two grandchildren, and it's actually really sweet how it's presented in that way. Um, and they kind of break the fourth wall throughout the game where. Uh, um, an enemy well there's one point where uh, a pirate appears and the grandfather's like oh this pirate appears and one of the kids says oh no it was a knight or something else and then the other kid's like no it was definitely a pirate and then you get to pick which one it actually is um so like the execution of bits and pieces like that's really nice but 
Dave Ryan, this game is fucking A Link to the Past Part 2 or 3 or whatever, depending on what you think of Link Between Worlds. Um, like, this game is so indebted to A Link to the Past that it's almost to a fault. Um, like, I've been showing you a few pictures here and there over the week of things that I find, yeah. and it's... <laughs> I, it's really weird. I've never found a game like this before where it's so on the nose about its influences that I'm like, come on now. I mean, could you give me something a, a little bit more to work with in terms of uh, originality or, you know, along those lines? Yeah. Um, I, I will say in their defense, they, they haven't been shy about it at all. It's not like they're trying to act like they came up with all the concepts in the game. They they, As far as I know, the developers are pretty much cards on the table about this is essentially, uh, you know, a fan-made oh, link to the past. Absolutely, yeah. But, I mean, I think for me, like, the the... The game that I use is the example of being indebted to something from the past, but really putting a, a different spin on it or a new spin on it is Shovel Knight. Because you can look yeah. at that game from afar and you, you can look at it and go, well, that looks like um, a, you know an NES game um, and clearly is inspired by the likes of Castlevania and Mega Man. But, I mean, Shovel Knight is its own game. Um, however you look at it visually, like mechanically, it is its own game. And simply put, Blossom Tales, as far as I can see from the four to five hours that I've put in so far, doesn't have that. Um, and now what is there is fine, but it's just it it retreads the same ground before that nothing's particularly sticking at the moment, other than well, you know, it's like Link to the Past, and fair enough, Link to the Past. I mean, that was the first game we ever did on the on this show you know as we named first, the fucking show after we it. named the fucking show after it so you know i am obviously a fan of that game and anything that plays remotely like that i'm going to at least enjoy it and i am enjoying blossom tales for what it is um but it's not particularly grabbing me because it's just i don't know while i'm playing it i'm thinking i could just go and fucking play links of the past you know what yeah. i mean um it because it and the other issue as well is that kind of map wise and what you need to do is all based on links of the past but it also uses the um the energy refill mechanic of a link between worlds which was a nice idea in theory but the idea between that is you were renting those items so there was at least a challenge that like if you die you had to go back and get them again we had to return them that doesn't exist with this so like the challenge the scale of the challenge has been reduced dramatically because you get bombs early on and all right you can only throw a few at a time before you need to stand back and recharge but you have infinite bombs to just bomb the shit out of anything um and like if you come up to an area where you find a crack in the wall uh you know instead of having to like make sure you have bombs available or you have to kind of make a note all right i need to come back to this that doesn't exist um you just you know you see a crack, throw a bomb at it, see what happens. So, like, a lot of the challenges in that way aren't there. Um, and then also, finally, the map, the overview of the map isn't particularly intuitive. Like, you can't... You, you can see the area, the aerial flash that you need to go to, and you'll see a tiny, tiny red dot, which indicates what you are. But in terms of, like, getting an idea of anything else in the world, you don't really have much to work with. So there's... I don't know. It's obviously a game that's made with love for something that's come before, and it's all put together very, very well. Like the whole package and presentation is very, very well. Not is very nice, but it's just it's so, so 
it's another game um, yeah. that I just I don't know. I will play this to the end. Like, there's no doubt about that. Um, mm. But yeah, I just wish it'd given me a little something more. It had a little bit more to it of its own. Yeah, kind of like the way uh, Link Between Worlds basically took the formula of Link to the Past, but also put a, a, like different spins and and kind of ways of modernizing um, that original game on it, so that it was very much uh, Link Between Worlds. One of the things I loved about it was it was a game that was so evocative and reminiscent, obviously, of the original Link to the Past, but it was its own separate thing at the same time. Um, it's possible to be an homage without being a facsimile, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, you know, it's it's perfect for uh, the Switch. Um, and so I can just pick it up. I can <laughs> Hashtag play... perfect for the Switch. Well, yeah. So I can pick it up, play it for half an hour at a time. And, you know, that's kind of been keeping my evenings going when I get home on the late shifts. And I can just kind of lie in bed with that. So, you know, uh, I, I'm enjoying it. I certainly wouldn't say that I'm not enjoying it. But... And I just, I just wish it'd give me a little, little something more. But I've only put about four hours in, so maybe at some point it will give me a, a twist. And uh, yeah, I don't I've know. certainly seen some uh, when when I looked it up after the Jim Sterling story before we talked about it on the show. Uh, I definitely saw some bosses and, and puzzles in there that are definitely like they're definitely beyond what you would have done in terms of. Uh, in, in terms of how complex the, the bosses were, it, it was more than you would have seen in Link to the Past, but yeah, the, uh, yeah, the, but, the, but broadly not so much. The one main boss I've done so far reminds me of something actually out of Titan Souls. Um, yeah, so I it, saw. I think I know the one you're talking about. So if I the think... bosses are along those lines, then that's at least uh, you know that's obviously the advantage of working with uh, with an engine that's slightly more advanced than back from 1991 or 92. So, you know, if we have the bosses, then there's at least something I can grab. Um, but that, that, yeah, that's pretty much been it so far. Okay, well, uh, with our playing this week out of the way, I think it's time to talk about all the, the current goss that's going on in the games industry with the news. News on the mark! Mark, first and foremost, we kind of knew this this franchise has been edging towards this concept for quite some time now. Uh, Call of Duty Black Ops 4 will not have a single-player campaign mode, uh, instead being replaced by something that I believe, uh, yes, being replaced by, of all things, shock horror, battle royale modes. Can I also just say as well um, that while we've been recording, uh, it's been announced that uh, Battlefront, or Battlefield, can remember which one, uh, will also have a Battle Royale mode in its next game. Yeah, but uh, this is a Battlefield year. Battlefield, Battlefield. and then Star Wars is Battlefront. So, uh, uh, yeah, it, they're, yeah, they're all coming well, out of the woodworks now. Yeah, yeah, striking while the iron's hot. That's, you know, that, that's to be expected. But I, I will uh, say this, Dave. I will say this. Yeah. Of all the Call of Duty games to do this, I'm actually fine with it being... Um, the Black Ops games because the single player campaign in all of the Black Ops games uh, they're all fucking terrible um, mm. so if they're gonna do it with one of them then sure do it with Black Ops and do the experiment with this one and see what happens yeah um, we we know they've been pushing for this they, they've kind of floated the idea 
while talking about it at investors calls and stuff like this for several years now and we even got to the point where I can't remember if it's the last just one year of Call of Duty games or maybe two years where the PS3 Xbox 360 version of the game doesn't have the single player just the multiplayer in it um so this was this this was obviously you think about it you know i I joked in the intro to the show that this makes the game less appealing to us because we're single player guys but in from a coldly business perspective it makes absolute sense to divert your resources to where they are best applied and the the vast majority of people who are your your whales on call of duty the people who are going to be sticking around playing that thing all year long don't really give a fuck about the the single player campaign they're there for the multiplayer and the new battle royale mode presumably so it's a shame because i think that um single player campaigns serve a very important role in shooters when they're done correctly um firstly they teach you how to play the game to like a reasonably adequate standard so that you aren't completely drowning when you get to the online multiplayer if it is a, a one of those shooters that wants you to play multiplayer a lot um and secondly as well some of my favorite and just because of the person and the 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 video game enthusiast i've always been um almost all the great first person shooter memories i have with the exception of probably goldeneye and time splitters and maybe one or two others are from games that had incredible uh single player campaigns now i know goldeneye did it all but my when i think about goldeneye i think more about the multiplayer than i think about the the campaign in it um yeah what what's your take on this i mean color me surprised uh let's be fair um activision are going to use this uh and they've had their Call of Duty games each year, in in a way, be a, a games as as a service type of game, um, because you know the single player is really second to the multiplayer, um, and and, I, and it has and it has been since Modern Warfare, really. Pretty well, I'd say like after Modern Warfare Two, maybe because that one had uh, a, a a real kind of as much of a push for the the single player campaign as yeah as yeah i suppose people people do love the campaign for that but what i mean i suppose what i what i meant to say was like modern warfare is that inflection point where they started hit going hey maybe multiplayer is just as important or maybe more sure so. and you know there's nothing wrong with that because obviously with the the accessible rise in uh online multiplayer uh, or in the, in the online multiplayer mode, you know, Call of Duty was there at the right time and um, was very good for that. Uh, certainly for the, the casual console player, um, and then it's you know just become this beast that's expanded from there. And you know, the battle royale mode, it, the battle royale mode is the you know the extension or the evolution, whatever way you want to look at it, is the the next big thing. Uh, and then every company, every developer, every publisher are going to get that piece of the pie while they can. And yeah. let's be honest, Call of Duty for the last few years has been slowly on the decline. Um, and the the thing that keeps people playing Call of Duty is the multiplayer mode. And the fact that we've got 
player unknown, and certainly now we have Fortnite uh, around. They have, they pretty much have to. Like, I, I'm not as kind of cynical about this because I don't really see them having the, any other choice but to do this. Um, because in the same way that all other first-person shooters after Modern Warfare felt that they had to implement a multiplayer mode whether they wanted to or not because they wanted people to play their games um, or to try and get, you know, close to COD numbers, um, which is why we ended up with, like, say, fucking Bioshock 2 with a, a multiplayer mode, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, it just... It, it would make sense... It wouldn't make any sense to not have it uh, for the next Call of Duty game and the next Battlefield game. Um, so yeah, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm not surprised and I'm not actually that cynical about it because it just, it makes sense from a business perspective. Um, and the simple fact is, again, I don't give a fuck about the storyline mode for the Black Ops games because they've all been terrible. So, uh, what will be interesting is how they, uh, benchmark this price-wise, um, mm. because... Uh, you know the battle royale mode for Fortnite was free to play. Is actually I don't even know if Fortnite in general is free to play now. I don't know how the hell that's priced up. I think it's just battle royale is free to play, but I, I don't want to say that categorically. Um, so I'll be curious to see how they uh, price this up because if they if they throw this as seventy quid, um, or for, for us it would be yeah like sixty seventy quid. That's going to be interesting. Um, so I don't know, but what, what, what are your takes? Yeah, I'm I'm just like obviously, you know, I'm not the the audience for Call of Duty at the best of times and this is kind of like put it even more on the back burner for me because I'm a single player shooter guy, but I, it's one of those things where it completely makes sense it, it for them to do that because why would you you know, dedicate a team to working part of your really really short development cycle? to a mode that doesn't really get used that much you know it's kind of um market forces have uh driven them to 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 not prioritize this and i i can't really much as the 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 part of me that that enjoys uh single player campaigns would would like to see this kind of stuff stick around I, i can't really bring myself to blame them for it at all i'm really curious to see like if this does blow up for them uh, and this works. How they'll look at how they look at Call of Duty games going forward. Um, if they'll at some point just divert this into being what we've always said about having just a, a Call of Duty online game, uh, similar yeah. to the way that GTA should just have a GTA online game. Um, mm. If they would at some point just have that as its own separate thing, and then I don't know, attempt to make single player Call of Duty games elsewhere. I don't know. Yeah, who knows. Um, moving on, uh, let's take our next story, Mark, over to Konami Corner. Fuck Konami. Well, Mark, we talked about how uh, we, when we do our Pez versus FIFA thing every single year on this show, um, I talk about how, uh, particularly from the outside, if you're not overly familiar with either franchise, the big difference you can point at between the two games is licenses. And uh, historically, Pro Evo do- doesn't have the 
the the bevy of licenses that FIFA boasts. FIFA has all the top leagues, all, all that good sort of jazz, whereas Pro Evo have had to live with like Man Red and Merseyside Blue and kind of you know. I can't. I can't even think of some of the. I know Juventus used to be called Piemonte on it, and and things like that. Um, but over the last like ten years, kind of midway through the 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 PS3 life cycle, they started trying to get some some licenses in, and periodically they do a deal with a single club or a group of clubs or or. Um, a league they they got the Eredivisie the Dutch league and a, and a couple of others but the the big license they got that FIFA n- did not have was the UEFA license for the Champions League and at the time the UEFA Cup now called the Europa League which are for those not in the know are the two premier club competitions for kind of European teams the best the best from all the leagues in Europe get together and they, they battle out for the Champions League or the kind of the, the teams that finished around fourth in, in each league go for the, the Europa League. And for the last 10 years or so, um, Pro Evo said, well, look, we don't have this club or that club, but you can have the authentic Champions League match day experience complete with the wonderfully pompous Champions League music, the like the Chirons on the screen and for a lot of uh, FIFA and PES players, that the match day experience, as they call it in the in the PR and marketing, uh, the match day experience really goes a long way. When it actually feels like the presentation from the television, it, it really helps. But what we're reporting here now is this: this comes from Eurogamer, is that Konami's partnership UEFA after ten years has come to an end, which means uh, they're exclusivity as Champions League rights holder for video games is over. The deal ends after this year's Champions League final in Kiev, which is at the end of May. The Champions League first appeared in Pro Evolution Soccer in 2009, which came out in 2008, while Konami uh, later added the licenses for the Europa League and the UEFA Super Cup to the series. Um, Back in June, Konami, uh, June 2015, Konami announced it had reached an agreement with UEFA about a renewal of the UEFA Champions League, Europa League, and Super Cup licenses in Pro Evo, so they would run a, an additional three years until 2019, as the previous agreement was due to be valid for another year. Today's news suggests this renewal was cut short. This is bad news for Pro Evo, which has for years struggled to compete with its cash-rich competitor FIFA when it comes to official football licenses. Konami has tried to keep up with official licenses for Barcelona, Liverpool, and Usain Bolt as well as my favourite one from last year Fulham and Arsenal Uh, but Pez famously still uses Man Blue for Man City London FC for Chelsea among other made up club names Uh, putting a positive spin on things Senior Director of Brand and Business Development for Konami said the UEFA Champions League licence has given us a platform to create a unique experience and provide football fans from all over the world with an opportunity to enjoy the competition firsthand. This year, however, we will shift our focus onto other areas. We will continue to explore alternative ways for UEFA and Konami continue to work together as our relationship remain strong. Um, I, I think the big, he- big headline from this, Mark, is that if EA fancy it now, uh, they can write a check and basically have the one 
the one part of kind of the football experience that they have lacked to this point, and that that being the the, the European Cups. Now I know that you probably don't give a shit about this, but from a like a business perspective, and from the perspective I just explained to you, what's what's your take on this? Uh, my take is at some point you're going to get like Champions League exclusive uh, uh, ultimate team football cards. That is my take. Yeah. Uh, well. What they do already in in Ultimate Team, and I know, as I've gone on record before, is I don't play Ultimate Team, but it's on the. You, there's a little splash page on on your home screen on on FIFA that, where you see the latest things that's going on, and like when there's an African Cup of Nations or something like that, you'll get kind of themed packs and like a promotion where you can do like a limited run tournament and stuff like that, and they do a like they do different kind of ultimate team leagues and stuff like that so i could see not necessarily special a special version of ultimate team for the champions league but i could see like a competition taking place on like you know tuesday and wednesday nights the match nights in the champions league where it's like oh we run a special tournament that only unlocks on those days or um We'll do a team of the week where players who perform well in the Champions League get a stats boost. So if you already have them in your team or if you un- uh, unwrap them in a, in a pack of cards on it, we can do that. But um, just for a minute-to-minute thing, it, it is pretty cool because it, it, I know, you, you like I said, you don't, you don't really give a shit about this sort of stuff. But it, it is one thing that's kind of immersion-breaking that you have this game in so many facets like... They have a really unbelievably authentic uh, presentation of how, like, the Premier League looks in terms of, like, tables and graphics and uh, commentary and the actual trophy. And the same goes for any number of competitions in it. La Liga, Serie A, uh, Ligue 1, all that sort of good stuff. And then all of a sudden you get to European Championship. Yeah. You know? And it just kind of all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, they don't fucking have it. And it just is this one kind of thing. Like it doesn't make, for most people, it doesn't make a difference between buying the game and not. But it really like makes FIFA even more of a complete package. I think. Yeah, I just I think hypothetically that's if they get it. You know, I I don't know how much it comes down to, but the the simple fact is, um, FIFA has been outselling Pez. Um, I'm not sure for how long now, but I, um, I think forever. Yeah, but I know that um, FIFA 17 smashed it. FIFA 18 smashed it. Um, I don't know how much that plays into it, but I would certainly imagine that um, the UEFA and the Champions League uh, look at this and think there's no real incentive for us to stay with Pro Evo, and I think yeah. that it wouldn't come as as much as much of a surprise as it is for Call of Duty to have a battle royale mode would be as, as much of a surprise when uh, mm. EA and FIFA uh, and UEFA announce the a partnership from next year. Yeah, uh, I I also think there's a certain element to which like we we all know because we I slag Konami off so much on this show that making actual video games isn't really a priority for them anymore. No, so. Uh, you know tv rights and licensing rights for football because football is such a ubiquitous and popular sport the the rights fees are going up all the time so i imagine as konami diversifies its portfolio like kind of pivots away from video games into pachinko and all those other revenue streams that are making them more money than video games ever were um they become more and more reticent to sign a check whereas 
EA Sports, one, it's a fucking drop in the ocean when you think about the money that EA has to get those UEFA licenses if they want them. Uh, and two, your, your, your marketing campaign for FIFA 19 has just written itself. You know what I mean? Like, you don't have to come up with... Like, every year they try to come up with a, oh, this is the new thing about it. But literally, FIFA 19 at this point now could just be a slightly better-looking FIFA 18 and your whole marketing campaign is that you can play in the Champions League and people are going to eat it up. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, you're not wrong there. <laughs> uh, moving on. Dark Souls on the Switch has been delayed. You will not be able to praise the sun until the summer. Bandai Namco has just announced that Dark Souls Remaster is being delayed on Switch. The game will be releasing on PS4, Xbox One and PC on the 25th of May as planned, but the Switch version has been pushed back to the summer. If that wasn't upsetting enough, the Solera Vastora amiibo has been postponed with the same time frame, although that kind of makes sense. Uh, Mark, I like it's obviously not going to be a walk in the park trying to get games that should function perfectly on PS4 and Xbox One to also comfortably run day and date with, with the Switch, but... It's a little bit disappointing, nonetheless. Like every time we see games releasing a couple of months ahead of their Switch skew on the other platforms. True, but I don't know. I still, I mean, I feel like that this is gonna not sell as much on uh, on the Switch as it will on, say, the PlayStation. Anyway. Um, yeah. Uh, and. You know, I feel that there's a whole bunch of different factors that go into getting a game ported to the Switch than there is for the PS4 and the Xbox One. So, uh, I don't know. And the fact that it's only by a few months as compared to, you know, a year, um, it's... I don't know. This isn't a, a, a total disaster. You know, this isn't um, No Man's Sky. So, I don't know. I'm... I, I'm sure there will be those out, out there that were looking forward to playing this on the Switch, um, but I'm sure you can hold out a few months, surely. Yeah. There's plenty coming out in the meantime. Get Mario Tennis Aces while you're waiting. Um, Mark, just when you thought it was safe to go back into the water, hit that music again. We're going back to Konami Corner. Fuck Konami. Hey, Mark, did you know there's a new Castlevania game coming out? Uh, yeah, I am aware. Uh, I'm also aware that it's going to be on mobile because... Yeah. Wow. Uh, because Konami. Um, yeah. yeah. I don't know. So, Castlevania, Grimoire of Souls, which is a pretty fantastic name. Uh, yeah. It was just announced by there's, Konami. There's one thing you will say about Castlevania. They know how to how to subtitle a game. I'm pretty sure at least five of those fucking games have souls in the title somewhere. Uh, <laughs> just announced by Konami on its official website is a mobile game exclusive to Japan, uh, which is also interesting. <laughs> uh, apparently, it's a new action game without a release date for now, but you can sign up for the Japanese closed beta test. I expect an email around mid-May if you do. Uh, the story is set in a future where Count Dracula has been completely destroyed... There was peace, but a letter delivered uh, to Genya Arikado has set the cat among the pigeons. Count Dracula will be resurrected. Oh no! Um, yeah, I look Konami. We were just talking about it with uh, with Pez. I I don't know what their 
ambitions are going forward. Um, I'm at least excited that we've got another Netflix series of Castlevania on the way. Because did you yeah, see? Buddy. Did you see that first series? Yeah, buddy. Oh man, I'm Trevor fucking Belmont. I just oh, that was that, those four episodes were not enough. Um, I don't know. I hopefully don't know this to... time, hopefully this time as well. When it comes out, it's uh, it's written like a multi-episode TV show and not a movie cut in four. Yes, well, I mean there is that. I'll know that Konami have definitely gone off the deep end when they decide to do a remastering of Castlevania '64. Um, <laughs> until then, I'll hold some, I'll hold some sort of faith and hope. But um, again, this doesn't really surprise me either. Absolutely. Uh... This is funny considering it, it wasn't too long uh, ago that we had one of these games on the book club. Nintendo Switch will host a range of Sega arcade classics via the company's rebooted Sega Ages brand, starting with Sonic the Hedgehog, Fantasy Star, Alex Kidd in Miracle World, and more. Europe, North America, and Japan will get the first batch of Sega Ages games starting this summer. Also included the ra- in the range's first list will be Thunder Force 4 and Game Ground. Development is being handled by M2, which previously gave fresh life to Sega Classics for the 3DS via the Sega 3D Classic series. Sega says it hopes the range will be the most faithful ports of Sega Master System, Mega Drive, and arcade games for the current generation. Mark, hyped? So what's really interesting about this is the fact that these games are being released as just games that you can buy off of the Switch eShop and not as virtual console games. Mm. That, that's the thing that I take away from this. Now, obviously, the idea that I can play Alice Kid in Miracle World um, on my Switch is is excellent enough. Um, now, does it say which version of Sonic the Hedgehog this is? Because <laughs> Hopefully, it's not the Game Gear version again. Well, I mean, or the Master System version, because that would yeah. be, that'd be interesting. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's just really curious that these games um, are coming... As just basically what I presume are like standalone uh, uh, Switch eShop titles. Um, but then we've been seeing that now uh, with like the Neo Geo classics that we've been, that have been, been dropped as well. So I don't know what the fuck their plan is for the virtual console at some point whenever it drops. Or they'll just decide, no, fuck it, we'll just release all the games as just kind of individual titles, which, hey, who knows? But, um, but yeah, I'm, hey, look. I, you know me and I know you. We both love some Alice Kid in Miracle World and I'll be more than happy to smash my Switch to smithereens trying to do that fucking bike section again. Um, so, yeah. it's just, the, the thing that's very interesting is the fact that this announcement comes in correlation with our next story, which is, and again, talking about things that don't really come as a surprise when you hear about it, uh, Sega is making a Mega Drive Mini. Yeah. So, Nintendo, uh, this coming from Eurogamer, Nintendo has found huge success with the NES and uh, SNES mini consoles, uh, and Sega is determined to get its slice of the action. So, here, here's the Sega Mega Drive Mini, which launches later this year, just in time for the console's 30th anniversary. Sega announced the microconsole over the weekend during its Sega FES event, and said it would launch in Japan first, with US and other territories later this year. There's no mention of how many games will be built into the console, or what games they might be. So, the SNES and then the mini NES what was it around about 20 to 25 games uh, I think the NES was 30 was it I'll Possibly. check while you're talking now off the top of my head thinking about games that are going to be on this obviously you're going to have all the Sonic games you'll probably get Altered Beast Streets of Rage uh, 
Gunstar Heroes, I would like to see. Comic Zone is an obvious one. You'll probably get Echo the Dolphin, even though it's terrible. Um, Shinobi, likely more combat. Dr. Botnik's Mean Bean Machine. Um, I'm trying to think what else, maybe. Um, uh, 30 for the NES Mini, 21 on the SNES. Okay. Including Star Fox 2. Uh, yeah, I, I think this would be... I mean, the, the Mega Drive has a, a, a phenomenal back catalogue, and I actually think it's the console that we haven't looked at enough uh, for our book club feature. But, so that's something I need to think about going forward. But yeah, this doesn't come as a surprise. Um, hopefully the leads are, are longer um, than what we had for the NES. I can't remember what the SNES leads were like. I presume they were... They were much better. They were okay. much better. They weren't the... The HDMI, from what I remember, wasn't very long, but the controller cables were much longer. So I was just able to put in my own really long HDMI cable and it was fine. And remind me, were there um, any borders or was the the display actually widescreen for... Uh, I know almost all the NES ones would have been 4.3, so there was borders. Um, I... I, d- I couldn't tell you for sure about the SNES. I-, I can't remember. I spent less time with my SNES Mini because those games are ones I would have played more recently, so I wasn't in as much desperation to go, oh, I need to play all of these in order as I was when I got the NES. Sure. Uh, so I, c- I couldn't tell you for absolutely sure, but I would I would suspect there were borders just because that would have still been at a time in technology where 4-3 was the standard aspect ratio. It only would have been the mid to late 90s where 16.9 became the popular one. Yeah. But I could be wrong. Um, but yeah, I'm not surprised by this. I just, I can't wait for Atari to make the announcement of a Jaguar Mini um, and then a Philips CDI Mini and so on and so forth. And uh, do you think at some point that we'll get a N64 Mini? Um, we talked about this before on the show and I, like... Because I don't think I don't, so. I don't, yeah, with those controllers, I, I don't think they will. One, the controllers, and and two, just the fact that I don't think... I, I, I think it's more work just because you, you need to go in and do something to those games because a lot of the polygonal era of video games don't hold up very well in 2018 on HD TVs. So it's you what we said to... back on the first episode, that Link to the yeah. Past is a fucking timeless game and holds up in any yeah. era. And it's yeah. just not the same with some of those N64 games. The, the 64-bit games with, with polygonal art in them, like, at the time we thought, hey, great, like it's a massive technological shift. But in terms of like lasting as a as something pleasant to look at it it's not worked out so well in a lot of cases um and i definitely like whereas i wouldn't rule out an n64 mini at some point or like not even a mini but like just a a reissue of an n64 like in a normal size one uh, that has games built into it I think they would need to commit to that as a project for a couple of years and put a team on it because they're going to need to firstly curate what games they're going to put on it and then secondly go under the hood of all those games and polish them off um, now a couple of them won't be so bad because they put some N64 games on the Wii U with with a nice coat of varnish on them and they didn't look bad but a co- the, the couple I looked at were ones that were kind of latter-day N64 games that 
didn't look that like Donkey Kong 64, which is one of the expansion pack games. So like as far as those polygonal games goes, that would have been one of the better looking ones. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely you can't with the N64 just bash a bunch of ROMs onto a chip, put a pretty tiny plastic N64 casing around it and then just ship it. It just won't hold up as well. But um, hey, Mega Drive NES. Uh, sorry, Mega Drive Mini. That'll be cool. Will they label yeah. it as the Genesis Mini as well? They're doing a um, Commodore 64 one as well, aren't they? Really? Not, obviously not Sega, but the, there is a... Com- I, I think I heard the giant bombcast talk about it that they're doing one and they were but the 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 design flaw with it is that like it's the commodore 64 well one it's the commodore 64 and two you need your own actual keyboard there's no keyboard with it (laughs) that is a slight design flaw yeah but then as someone pointed out it's like you bring up the the, you couldn't just have a miniature keyboard you would have to have a full-size keyboard so you're increasing the uh the development costs exponentially of that thing when you just want to throw it out nice and cheap at a tiny box but yeah i'm sure everybody like they've shown nintendo have shown with the with the nes and the snes uh minis that there's money to be made here in uh miniaturized nostalgia so like don't be money to be be made and also money to not be made in not selling enough or making enough can't wait for the the sega saturn small coming out in a a Uh, couple of years (laughs) did i tell you uh myself and my good friend dylan we actually completed time crisis 2 at the uh, arcades in token a couple of weeks ago and let me tell you you that was that was a monumental feat that cost me about 15 tokens Hey, do you know what I'd actually, speaking of which, do you know what I'd actually uh, really enjoy um, is a mini Dreamcast with just a handful of games on it. Mini Dreamcast? Because, like, that's, you know, we laugh at the Saturn, but the Dreamcast, we always think, well, there was a console that was doomed that had some games people really like on it. I, I actually think... You know, if you could find a way, because obviously it's a 128-bit console, so it's even yeah. more work again to miniaturize uh, that uh, technology. You know I'll do you one better but than that. If they, if they could get over that technological hump and figure out how to miniaturize it, I reckon they could make a small fucking fortune off it. I'll do honest. you one better than that. Just put Crazy Taxi on the Switch. Yeah. If you if you go crazy, if you go, we have a Dreamcast Mini. You got Crazy Taxi, Fantasy Star Online, uh, Sonic Adventure, and a handful of others. Uh, you ruined it, Pe- Sonic Adventure. But people do like Sonic Adventure. You know I, I mean? that... Those people are sick in the head. <laughs> no, you just play that one level with the fucking whale or the dolphin yeah, the first over and over again. Yeah, you play that over and over. Just put the first level on it. Yeah, just, it'll and make maybe... you feel like you're 12 again. And then... Put the, the first level of Sonic Adventure and then get the uh, get that one banger of a song from Sonic Adventure 2 on the, the GameCube. Just put that as an MP3 on it and you're grand. Yeah, it's fine. you got that. You got Resident <laughs> Evil Code Veronica, which was you know a game that was heavily out of date with its mechanic by that point with its fucking tank controls um and you know the story had gone off the rails by that point um oh there's uh what the fuck's the fishing game um seaman seaman yeah (laughs) Yeah. um changing tack a little mark uh the video game baftas were last week and hellblade won big uh, ninja theory's dark fantasy adventure took home five baftas for artistic achievement audio achievement british game game beyond entertainment and uh, melina jurgens won for performer in her category as senua um 
this is my favorite part of the whole article though that you sent me about the BAFTAs is that what remains of Edith Finch the second game from Giant Sparrow won best game way um and they had previously won for debut game with uh, the unfinished swan uh, so yeah, Hellblade. <laughs> I really need to get around to Hellblade. You know that. Yeah, makes like, sense. After, after Barry talking about it last year, I was like, yeah, I need to get that, and I fucking bought it and everything. <laughs> and I just still haven't got because it's it's so not in like it's just not near anywhere near the top of my thoughts when it comes to video games. But every time I think of it, I'm like, oh, son of a bitch, yeah, that game exists. Yeah, um, it's still in my. Uh list of things I want to play this year because it, it does look very intriguing um, but yeah just I had a look through uh, some of the other um, winners as well and obviously Cuphead won best music uh, Night in the Woods won BAFTA for the best narrative and uh, Guerrilla Games won uh, for best original property with Horizon Zero Dawn which doesn't come as too much a su- surprise uh, and the fellowship was presented to Double Fine's Tim Schafer, so bless him. Hey. Yeah, um, who we th- talked about last week on the program. Yes, yes, I do remember you saying. So yeah, all, all, all in all, I saw some tweets from it, and the people there seemed to have a very nice time. So good for them. Indeed. Our final story: scandal, shock, heartbreak, Donkey Kong. We found out this week that Donkey Kong champion Billy Mitchell has had his high scores wiped after evidence evidence of cheating emerges. The greatest panto villain in the history of competitive video games, who we covered way back, Mark. I think we're on episode 107 now. We talked about the documentary this man is featured in, King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters, back on episode 37. God, I was a child back then. 70 episodes ago. So go back to episode 37 if you want to hear our film review of King of Kong, Fistful of Quarters, which was the first time Mark had ever seen the film. Um... And yeah, that film pretty much sets him up as the worst human being in the world, and it was the real... But also in some ways kind of the greatest as well. But also the greatest, King of Hot Sauce and Donkey Kong. Um, And it set him up against working class hero Steve Wiebe. Um, The the film, as Eurogamers say here, chronicles the mid-2000s attempt by new challenger Steve Wiebe to finally best the Donkey Kong high score set years before by Billy Mitchell. Wiebe is portrayed as the underdog to root for Mitchell, the self-assured pro. To cut a long story short, Weeby has his big shot. First ever Donkey Kong score over a million points ruled out after Mitchell throws doubt on Weeby's claim. Mitchell then provides contentious videotaped evidence of his own million point run, which arcade uh, high score tracking company Twin Galaxy accepts. Twin Galaxies accepts instead. Fast forward today and the result of a long-running investigation into Mitchell's Donkey Kong high score. A decade on, Twin Galaxies has determined that several of Mitchell's high-scoring achievements could not have been possible on an unmodified Donkey Kong arcade machine, something which official records require. The result, a seismic change in the history of arcade game high scores. Mitchell records for Donkey Kong and every other arcade game have been swiped from Tim... Uh, Twin Galaxies official listing the organization has also notified Guinness World Records and after achieving another verified million point run soon after King of Kong was filmed Steve Wiebe is now rightly recognized as the first player in history to beat the million score mark justice for Steve Wiebe hey I'll hand over to you on this one Mark (laughs) just it's it's pure panto Um, god I hope we get a sequel 
there has to be another film that we have enough <laughs> material now like i don't know whether we're gonna get just fucking um homemade tapes of billy mitchell just ranting into the night um which i'll take in fairness but there has to be more we have to get some more video footage or like i hope fucking um billy mitchell puts on like a king of iron fist tournament for donkey kong in his backyard or something god there has to be more to this <laughs> yeah i think if they have enough footage in the can uh, and those directors are still interested uh, there is money to be made off a sequel here for sure um uh, just excellent stuff and, and i really hope there are more twists to this tale as well uh, i'm keeping my eye out this is awesome i i do wonder though how his hot sauce empire is faring i'm sure poor he's billy. doing grand poor billy at his american flag ties <laughs> That's the end of the news this week, and now it's time to dip into the Linked Cast Book Club, that feature where we talk about an important game from the past that you should play for the first time if you never have before, or revisit if it's been a while. This week, Mark takes the helm, and he is going to talk about a game called Papers, Please. Papers, Please is a puzzle video game created by indie game developer Lucas Pope, developed and published through his company 3909. The game was released on August the 8th, 2013 for Microsoft Windows and OS X, for Linux on February 12th, 2014, and for iOS on December the 12th, 2014. A port for the PS Vita was announced in August 2014 and released on December the 12th, 2017. Papers, Please has the player take the role of a border-crossing immigration officer in the fictional dystopian Eastern Bloc-like country of Arsistokska, maybe? I don't know. Which has been and continues to be uh, at political hostility... Sorry. Which has been and continues to be at political hostilities with its neighbouring countries. As the officer, the player must review each immigrant and returning citizen's passports and other supporting paperwork against a list of ever-increasing rules using a number of tools and guides, allowing in only those with the proper paperwork, rejecting those without all proper forms, and at times detaining those with falsified information. The player is rewarded, rewarded in their daily salary for how many people they have processed correctly in that day, while being fined for making mistakes. The salary is used to help provide shelter, food and heat for the family player's in-game family. In some cases, the player will be presented with moral decisions, such as approving entry of a pleading spouse of a citizen despite the lack of proper paperwork, knowing that this game this will affect their salary. In addition to a story mode which follows several scripted events that occur within the game, the game also includes an endless mode that challenges the player to process as many immigrants as possible. Um, now, Papers, Please is a, is a really interesting game. Um, that caused a lot of hype when it first came out, and it caused a stir when it came out because it's it's a game like no other. It really is the best way, you know. It's just to call it a puzzle video game doesn't really do it justice because, yes, in theory and its mechanics, um, it is a puzzle game. 
um, you know, you are presented with these uh, scenarios that you have to kind of figure out um, and you kind of learn the rules and then you apply what you learn to try and, you know, figure out the next kind of puzzle that's brought to you. In this case, each person that comes through uh, with their papers. Um, and it's very clever about the way it does that and the fact that it disguises this puzzle game as basically, uh, you know, an immigration office uh, environment um, with you playing the officer. Um, I'll start with uh, Dave. Had, what is your experience with this game? Um, so I have this game. I, I came to it after the fact, kind of um, as the 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 show is a tidal wave of hype was was amassing around this game. Uh, I came to it, so I, I've played it a little bit. I, I don't want to try and, and hijack your your story of things here, so I'll, I'll kind of chip in as it goes. But uh, to kind of kick things off a little bit, um, I one of the things I really appreciate about this game is, or sorry, two of the things I really appreciate about this game, which might be an, a nice point to to start discussion on. Um, one, the mechanical simplicity of the game. Uh, and two, the game's overarching message of kind of like almost the banality of evil. If you get where I'm coming from. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, from there, uh, please continue. So what's interesting about this game, amongst everything else, um, is the way that it provides you with the ability to use empathy um or and to to sympathize but actually have the option the, the the ability to do something about this because usually um in a film or in a, a game that doesn't give you the options you know usually you're presented with a, a character that you can sympathize for but it's just scripted that way and and there's that barrier between you um and that character and you know, one of the things about games that makes them great is that you can also kind of interact with these characters in a way that you can't do it in a film. But there's still, um, you know, with a lot of games, there's still kind of an endpoint that you're going to reach with the story that you can't do anything about. You know, just that that's where the story is fixed to. And it's different with Papers, Please, because every person that comes through, you have a choice. Um, now it is binary in that it's a you know kind of yes or no decision, but it's still the simple fact is you will have people that come through the the checkpoint and they all have their own stories and it's kind of that thing that you know if you go into and I'm I I've done this where you're in an airport or you're at a train station or you're in some kind of environment where you have uh, people going past and you're sitting there and um, I don't know if you've done this before, Dave, but you just kind of sit there and you just look at people that go past and you think like, okay, what's their story? What's their story? And you have yeah, pe people here. watching is like a, it's something the the kind of the, the brain at rest will do like in a crowd. Yeah, absolutely. Know? And so you have this here where you have these people that come through and they all have their own stories and um, they're all you know they're basically mini puzzles. Um, and you'll have a, a, a man that will come through and, you know, will say that I don't have this piece of my documentation, but I have a wife and a child on the other side. 
and you know you have to make that decision on whether you believe this person or not um and then after that you know one of several things that can happen you know you'll be fined and so then your family has to suffer with either not having uh, heating or not having food for a week um but that person who you've let through perhaps they're a terrorist and you'll see that as they go off the screen into the country that you know an explosion will happen and there's the 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 reports that you know a terrorist was let through and then you have to learn from that for the next time and you know that impacts the the empathy that you have the next time a person comes through with the checkpoint um saying you know a similar story who may legitimately this time actually have a family on the other side but because of what's happened before you're more hesitant to let them through and it's fucking amazing how the game with these kind of really simple mechanics at hand has the power to change the you know influence you on how you uh, choose these decisions um and i think that it's very powerful in that it does that uh you know in a way that big triple a games can't get to uh, points because of how intimate it is um you know the fact that you have uh this documentation from this npc that comes through and you can see their passport, you can see where they're from, you can see their date of birth. Um, you have, like, you know, the kind of x-ray scan. You can see if they have anything on them that they shouldn't have. Um, and they're just, there are f- so few games that have that level of intimacy. Um, and I think that because of the world that we live in, certainly from the time of 2013 to now... Uh, where we are with um, the the constant stories around immigration, uh, whether it's home or abroad, like a lot of the things that this game kind of bring to light are a lot more. You know, the story that this game tells is is so much more prevalent even than it was say four or five mm. years ago. Um, and you know, games are used to tell stories, um, but there aren't many games that are going to be telling the story around, you know, an immigration checkpoint in a fictional Eastern Bloc country, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and like one of like the main thing that, that this game is kind of exploring is, is that idea of um, <clears throat> what we'd call either moral or, or ethical relativism, um, which is trying to make a point that under the circumstance, under certain circumstances, the, the, the player, because, the, the the idea of papers please really like revolves around the idea that you are the player with agency and aware of what's going on outside of the game that you're not kind of lost in the narrative so much um you are it attempts to put you into a difficult pres- position that tries to get you to abandon what you know to be the morally right thing kind of so like moral relativism is all about how you you take a position that doesn't recognize what would you that you don't you take a position that that doesn't adhere to what would be considered universal truths morally speaking but uh what you do is based on the situation you're in at that moment based on your own personal circumstances where whether it be like the fear of reprisal if you get the the call wrong whether to let the person in or not uh, or the the social uh, or, or cultural hints you've picked up on based on the person you're making the decision on you decide based on that 
whether to to reject them or not it's very reminiscent uh to me of uh wh- when i did my my first masters um we did this thing that it had the the very uh that our lecturer had designed called like the really catchy title called the wmd webex or something like that he called it uh and it was it was trying to shine a light on people's inner thoughts on so mark you know how like a lot of people when when pushed for it will say for example that they believe that weapons of mass destruction are objectively bad yeah right and that they could that there's never a circumstance under which that they would approve of the use of weapons of mass destruction. It would be fair to say that a lot of people would hold that position, correct? Correct. So this thing that we did in our masters was this long kind of like through a series of incrementally kind of heightened choices put you in a situation by the end which kind of shows that most people by their true nature of being uh, suspicious and and paranoid about other people and how they will react or or what will happen or what will happen to them they they would sooner eventually use something like this rather than say like you said you might not in your your daily life uh be prejudiced against certain people but it, you see how someone in a job somehow suddenly gets suspicious and paranoid because they're afraid that they'll get blamed for something. Uh, and that's a really interesting concept for a game, I think. Yeah, and like one of the things that I like about Papers, Please is that um, it decides to go full on with this idea that, you know, like with any um, film that doesn't have a kind of quote-unquote happy ending, you know, um, Papers, Please makes it very difficult to have a, a kind of happy ending. Um, and it also makes it very difficult for you to try and be a good person. Um, because, you know, when I when I play a video game um, and we saw the, the rise of uh, games of this nature from the mid-2000s onwards of, you know, giving you a choice of being a good person or a bad person. And, you know, different games have explored this in different ways. But I would usually err on the side of trying to be a good person. Red Dead Redemption yeah. is usually my go-to example of just I just I try to play through the game as a good person, um, and kind of follow John Marshall's redemption story basically. But with Papers Please, it's very difficult to do that because of the scenarios that are laid out in front of you, the people that are laid out in front of you, um, and the results and the consequences of what happened. So again, for example, you know, you let a person through who gives you this sob story and then they go and let off an explosion because they're a terrorist. That just, it automatically rewires you into, okay, well, I'm not going to let that happen again. Um, and the, the impact that you suddenly have um, going forward of the people that you reject who may legit- legitimately have a claim to be let back into the country. Uh, I just, I think it's so effective in the way that it does that. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. It's just, it, it's it's funny that like, I I would love to. I don't know if it has has any kind of like, I suppose no one's really doing it except Danny O'Dwyer, uh, like uh, some sort of kind of insider interview with where this 
that this notion that this concept came from uh, been done yet because I'd really love to to pick the brains uh, of of what was going on. So from um, some of the details around it, Lucas Pope uh, explains that you know while he had been able to come up with the me- mechanics of the passport check-in, uh, he said that he lacked a story to drive the game, um, but he was inspired by films like Argo and the Bourne films, which feature characters attempting to infiltrate... <laughs> which is pretty, like, the Bourne films, like, action-packed, yeah. you know, killing a man with a book, and all of a sudden you just having Zia and Papiakin. <laughs> yeah, but it was, like, the idea that it features characters that are attempting to infiltrate into or out of other countries with uh, subterfuge. Um, yeah. And so Lucas saw this as an opportunity to reverse... The, the scenario basically and putting the players the role of an immigration officer to stop those types of agents coming in yeah um it's one of those beautiful genre deconstructions like do you remember that what was that game where you played the role of the person that comes along and cleans up the level of a first person shooter after someone had come through it and killed everybody um huh what do you remember that reverse latoon yeah, there was there was there was just this game where you played the the role of the guy who's like, oh, someone has beaten the level and there's body parts and viscera all over the place. So I'm coming in with my mop and I have to clean it all up. I have no idea what game that is. I'll try and find out what it is here. Um, but yeah, I I love the idea of a genre deconstruction like that. It's like yes, you've seen the idea of like you said, trying to infiltrate a country with subterfuge, but you've never considered it from this perspective, which is just fucking genius. And I like the idea because you know when you usually think of um, anything to do with the Cold War or um, the Soviet Union or anything of that kind of totalitarian uh, type nature like you know the games that we're used to are either you know first person shooters or um or you just think about you know all the bond films of the 70s and 80s and the way that they presented the cold war and this is it but from a completely different aspect um and that's a large part of the appeal of it that it takes something that we've seen presented in one way and presents it in this completely different way and as a video game from a, a way that we've never seen presented before um, and it's pretty fucking bold in his ambition to do a game like this because it's the kind of thing that could easily fall by the wayside as just this quirky little indie thing but the fact that it picked up as much notoriety as did um, and the fact that he won a whole bunch of awards for it um, you know, it was well. It was nominated. It, it won best simulation game and was nominated for best game, best uh, game design, and game innovation at the 2014 BAFTA Video Game Awards. Mm. Um, and he's apparently, uh, as of 2014, no, sorry, as of 2016, uh, it sold 1.8 million copies across all platforms. Now, I imagine a lot of those copies sold are more just out of like people just intrigued by this weird passport checkpoint simulator more than anything else um but it speaks to that if something is interesting you know people will go for it yeah no absolutely it definitely does that i'm gonna pause one Um, second sorry yeah uh i think my food is outside cool will we just grab it and then we'll just wrap up real quickly yeah i'm just gonna pause and then we'll come back 